Good morning, church family. Please join with me in turning to page 986 in the Blue Church Bible in front of you. Today's sermon passage comes from 1 Thessalonians, starting in chapter 2, verse 17, to chapter 3, ending in verse 13. But since we were torn away from you, brothers, for a short time in person, not in heart, we endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face, because we wanted to come to you, I, Paul, again and again, but Satan hindered us. For what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone, and we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith, that no one be moved by these afflictions, for you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction, just as it has come to pass, and just as you know. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith, for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you, and our labor would be in vain. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you and through your faith. For now we live, if you are standing fast in the Lord. For what thanksgiving can we return to God for you, for all the joy that we feel for your sake before our God? As we pray most earnestly, night and day, that we may see you face to face and supply what is lacking in your faith. Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus direct our way to you, and may the Lord make you increase and abound in love for one another and for all, as we do for you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with all his saints. Well, the Chain Lakes Loop Trail is one of my favorite hikes in the world. It's located in Mount Baker National Forest, and really it, it has it all. Meadows of heather, varieties of wildflower, blueberry bushes, alpine lakes. It's got gorgeous views of the North Cascade mountain range and stunning sights of Mount Baker. Uh, I know Samuel Potter's been on this hike, and I'm sure he'll agree, it's amazing. But it's one of those hikes with a lot of elevation. So by the time you reach the end, you're pretty hot and sweaty, to say the least. Thankfully, the Lord has kindly placed a huge alpine lake right at the end of the hike for overheated swimmers to jump in. But the thing is, this lake is made of glacier water. And so that means that when you jump in for a split second, you think you've made a terrible mistake because your lungs close up and it's difficult to catch your breath. And so as a result, you can't really stay in there for long. However, once you get out, if you get out, something amazing happens because the glacier water causes your body to release this avalanche of endorphins. And in a way that's hard to describe, you feel invincible. You feel glorious, you feel alive. I wonder if you ever felt that way. It's kind of like the feeling you get when something amazing happens to you. So when you score that glorious goal, 
or you ace that difficult test, or the girl you asked out says yes, or you get that coveted promotion, or you ride the intimidator at King's Dominion for the first time, or you find out you're having a baby, you're on cloud nine, you're walking on sunshine, there's a spring in your step, you can't stop smiling, you feel alive. Well, in our passage this morning, the apostle Paul is on cloud nine. He's walking on sunshine, he can't stop smiling, he feels alive. But interestingly, his circumstances are pretty dire. He's, he's alone and suffering, he's been beaten, jailed, defamed, persecuted, rejected, scorned, he's been ran out of town, yet he's overjoyed, he's alive. So what's going on? And how can we experience that same kind of joy even in suffering? So as we look at this passage together, I want us to just see two things this morning. I want us to see Paul's anxiety, and then I want us to see Paul's joy. So Paul's anxiety and Paul's joy. So let's begin by seeing Paul's anxiety. So if you are just joining us for our series in 1 Thessalonians, let me just catch you up to speed. So Paul is writing to a church in a city called Thessalonica. And he started this church after passing through this city, preaching the gospel. However, his time with them was cut short because basically an angry mob chased Paul and his friends out of town for preaching about Jesus. And so Paul had to leave this church full of baby Christians in a city that was very hostile to the gospel. And so as you can imagine, he was very anxious to know how they were doing. And in our passage, we get a beautiful window into the Apostle Paul's heart. So look at chapter 2, verse 17. Paul says there that they were torn away from the Thessalonians. And he uses a very interesting Greek verb right there. It's a verb from which we get the English word orphaned. In other words, Paul felt like a parent who'd been, who'd, who'd lost his children. So Paul has already, if you remember last week, he's compared himself to a mother and a father in chapter two. Now he compares himself to a parent who's lost his kids. He compares himself to a bereft parent. That's the, that's the pastoral heart that Paul has for this church. This is the anguish Paul is experiencing. Even though he says this separation is just for a short time, it's not forever, still Paul is grieving. But he assures them there in verse 17 that they were torn away in person, not in heart. In other words, when Paul went away, he left his very heart with the Thessalonians. Therefore, Paul and his associates did everything in their power to return to this church. Notice the passionate effort. So look at the language Paul uses. We endeavored the more eagerly and with great desire to see you face to face because we wanted to come to you. Paul gets so worked up at this point that he emphasizes his own personal desire. He says, I, Paul, again and again, he wants this church to know that he tried everything to return to them. But Satan hindered us, he says. So great was Paul's effort to return to this church that it took nothing less than demonic opposition to stop him. Now, we're not sure exactly how Satan hindered them, 
We can only speculate. The most likely explanation is that it was just simply too dangerous for Paul to return. So if you remember when Paul was in Thessalonica, he was, he was chased out of town by an angry mob. And so we can imagine that it's probably unsafe for him to come back right at this time. Whatever the case, uh, Satan seems to be behind him not being able to return. Now, we'll come back to verses 19 to 20 in a moment, but Paul continues his account in chapter 3. So look at verse 1 of chapter 3. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. It got to the point where Paul couldn't take it any longer. The anguish and the anxiety became too much. And so Paul sent Timothy. And this would have been a costly decision because it left Paul and Silas alone in Athens. And Paul makes it clear that Timothy wasn't just some Joe Schmo. He calls Timothy our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ. These are some pretty impressive credentials. We might expect Paul to call Timothy our co-worker, but he gives him this exalted title of God's co-worker. In other words, Paul didn't send some disposable intern or, or an unimportant errand boy. No, he sent his best man to the Thessalonians. That's how much he cares for them. Now, we're not sure why Timothy could travel back and not Paul. Maybe it was because Timothy was less well-known and so he could fly under the radar a bit. Whatever the case, Timothy was sent, and he was sent with a mission. Look at verse 2. Timothy was sent to establish and exhort the Thessalonians in their faith. The word establish there is used frequently in the New Testament. It's used in those contexts where someone was in danger of falling away from the faith, usually because of persecution. The word encouraged there is often used when people needed encouragement to persevere in the Christian life. So why did the Thessalonians need establishing and encouraging in their faith? We'll look at verse three. That no one be moved by these afflictions. The Thessalonians are suffering for the gospel. And Paul was concerned that they'd be overwhelmed by their affliction. He was worried that persecution would cause them to wobble, to, to be shaken, to fall away. Even though their suffering shouldn't have actually come as a surprise. So look at the end of verse 3. For you yourselves know that we are destined for this. For when we were with you, we kept telling you beforehand that we were to suffer affliction. Just as it has come to pass. And just as you know. Just like last week, Paul is reminding this church of things they already know. They knew they were destined to suffer for the gospel. How did they know this? Well, because Paul kept telling them that this would happen. We get a fascinating insight here into Paul's discipleship strategy. Paul wasn't with the Thessalonians for very long, maybe just a few short weeks. Yet, he catechized them in the reality that following Jesus is hard. He repeatedly told them that they, were, they would suffer for the gospel. In other words, Paul read them the small print of the gospel. He, he didn't give them the utopian sales pitch of the Christian life. 
Paul wasn't a sleazy salesperson trying to get ignorant people to sign on the dotted line for Jesus. He knew this church would have to pick up their cross and follow Christ. They'd have to die to themselves. They'd have to swim against the cultural tide. They'd have to endure suffering before they got to glory. Yet, Paul knew that Jesus was worth it. And so, he didn't preach the prosperity gospel. He didn't tell people that Jesus was going to give them health, wealth, and happiness. No, he made it crystal clear that following a crucified Savior would mean suffering affliction. And I think we can all learn from Paul in this regard. So as we disciple our children, as we counsel one another, as we share the gospel with our friends, we should be very clear that following Jesus is hard. Your life might get worse if you follow Jesus. Saying no to us to our sin, crucifying our sinful desires, resisting temptation, this is really tough. Simply battling our own sinful habits and inclinations involves a kind of suffering, a daily dying to oneself. Holding to what the Bible says about sexual ethics or the exclusivity of Jesus or the reality of hell won't win us many friends. People might laugh at us, ostracize us, reject us. They might even harm us. Satan will use everything in his power to attack us in our faith. He'll feed us lies, lead us into temptation, rouse up enemies, whatever it takes. The sinful flesh, the world, the devil do not want us to follow Jesus. And so we need to prepare people for this in our discipleship. But we should also tell people that Jesus is worth it. That suffering leads to glory. In fact, even in the suffering, there's unspeakable joy for those who know Christ. Somebody asked me this week, why do believers like me have so many trials one after another? And my heart broke for this person because they've been through so much suffering since they became a Christian. I don't know why the Lord has allowed so many trials in this person's life. It does seem like some believers get more suffering than others. However, what I do know is that suffering is, is a part of the Christian life. I mean, the Bible's so clear on this, isn't it? Look, think of what the Apostle Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 4, verses 12 to 13. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you, as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. Christine, if you're suffering this morning and just looking out and seeing faces, I know so many of you are. I hope this encourages you. That your suffering has a purpose. I know it's not part, I know it's not part of your plan, but it is part of your heavenly father's plan. And as Peter says, your suffering won't have the last word. There will be a day when you rejoice when the glory of Christ is revealed. Paul continues in verse five. So in light of their suffering, he says this, for this reason, when I could bear it no longer, I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So Paul repeats that phrase, when I could bear it no longer. He, 
he felt sick to his stomach. Why? Interestingly, it's not because the Thessalonians are suffering. Paul just thinks that's normal. What Paul found unbearable was what their suffering might lead to. He was anxious that the tempter had tempted them, that Satan had convinced them to throw in the towel, that all their suffering had led them to, to conclude, Jesus, Jesus is not worth it. And Paul could not bear that thought. You know, some of us know how he feels, right? I mean, can you think of anyone who started off well in the Christian life, but now seems to have given up on Jesus? Maybe it's your son or your daughter. Maybe it's a friend or a family member. Maybe it's a neighbor or a coworker. Maybe it's even a church member. You've shared the gospel with them. You've prayed for them walked with them, invested in them. And for a while, the gospel seemed to be bearing fruit. They were excited about Jesus. They, they prayed, they read the Bible, they attended church. Maybe they even used their gifts to save others. But now it seems like the tempter has tempted them. They appear to have fallen away from the faith. It's sickening, heartbreaking. You know, I said at the beginning, have you ever felt, felt alive I mean, this feels the opposite, doesn't it? It feels like a death when you see that happen to someone. And that's why Paul couldn't bear the thought that this has happened to the Thessalonians. This is Paul's anxiety. And this brings us to our second point this morning, Paul's joy. Paul's joy. Look at verse six. But now that Timothy has come to us from you. Okay, so what's his report gonna be? Are Paul's worst fears going to come true? Is he going to find out that the Thessalonians have abandoned ship? Let's keep reading. And has brought us the good news of your faith and love. And reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us as we long to see you. I mean, think of the, the relief that you feel when you receive a good report. You know, you visit the doctor. You you wait in the room and it, and it seems like an eternity. You're on edge. You, you're thinking worst case scenarios. You're trying to distract yourself. But then the doctor comes in and says, your results are completely normal. <sighs> the relief. Your phone buzzes. You, you tense up. It's a text message from your child. Hey, dad, we got there safely. <sighs> the relief. You refresh your inbox for the 50th time that day. All of a sudden, you've got an unread message. It's from that job interview. You open it, your, test, your chest tightens. Congratulations, you've got the job. <sighs> the relief. This is what Paul felt after Timothy's report. He calls it good news there in verse six. That word, there, it's, it's from the Greek word for gospel. Every other time this word's used in the New Testament, it refers to the gospel of Jesus Christ. Yet Paul uses it here in regards to hearing about the Thessalonians' faith. That is how overjoyed Paul is upon hearing this report. He continues in verse seven. For this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we've been comforted about you through your faith. For now we live. If you are standing fast, in the Lord. You know, Paul, 
He's suffering a lot for the gospel, yet here he is, overjoyed, comforted, not because his sufferings have ended, but because the Thessalonians are standing fast in the Lord. They're continuing to trust Jesus despite their affliction. This is such good news to Paul that he says, now we live. It's like, he's been re- it's like Paul's been resurrected. He feels alive. He feels like I did when I get out of a glacier lake. That's the kind of feeling he feels. He's walking on sunshine. There's a smile on his face. However, notice and notice this. His circumstances haven't actually changed. They're still terrible. He's still suffering. Yet in the midst of his affliction, he has this deep, inexpressible joy. Why? Because the Thessalonians are standing firm in the Lord. This is abundant life for Paul. He doesn't think the good life is found in being popular or comfortable or powerful. He's not out there chasing possessions and money and status and fame. No, he, here's what Paul wants. He wants people to know and trust Jesus. That's how other-centered his life is. And when he sees this, he feels alive. We get a sense of of his joy in verses nine to 10. He says, for what thanksgiving can we return to God for you? For all the joy that we feel for your sake, before our God, as we pray most earnestly night and day that we may see you face to face and supply what's lacking in your faith. You know, Paul doesn't look at this church and like give himself a prideful pat on the back. He doesn't, he doesn't receive this report from Timothy and go, wow, I have done an awesome job discipling these guys. I am killing it in ministry. That's not how he responds. But or nor does he nor does he like thank the Thessalonians. He doesn't go, guys, thank you for standing firm in the Lord. You guys are awesome. You guys are the best. Thanks for bringing me so much comfort. No, instead he offers up thanksgiving to God. He gives God the credit for the gospel, for this fruit that he's seeing in their lives. He asks a rhetorical question there. He's basically saying, I don't have the words to express how thankful I am to the Lord for you. There's no amount of thanksgiving I can give that would match the joy I feel. But notice that Paul doesn't think his work is done. He prays night and day to see them face to face. He wants to visit them again and supply what's lacking in their faith. Despite their spiritual health, they still need to keep growing. And so Paul ends with a pastoral prayer in verses 11 to 13. He prays that God the Father and the Lord Jesus will reunite them. He prays for the Thessalonians' love to increase and abound in love for one another and for all. And finally, he prays in light of the coming of Jesus. He prays that God would establish their hearts blameless in holiness. His prayer is actually going to be, he's actually setting up the next couple of weeks in Thessalonians as we're going to be talking about holiness and love. But for now, notice what Paul doesn't pray for. He doesn't pray the way that we would expect. Because we might expect Paul to pray that their suffering would end. After all, isn't that what we we do? I think think many of us, when we hear that a fellow Christian's suffering, the first thing we pray for is that their suffering would end, right? And that's, that's a fine prayer. That's good to pray that. However, Paul tends to have different priorities, doesn't he? He wants their faith to persevere. He wants their love 
to grow. He wants their holiness to be established. He wants them to be ready for Christ's return. He doesn't even mention their suffering. Now, maybe you're sitting here wondering, why does Paul care so much? Why does the spiritual state of this church cause him so much anxiety and distress? Why is he so overjoyed to hear that they're standing firm in the Lord? I mean, why on earth does this church take up so much of his emotional bandwidth? We'll look again at chapter 2, verses 19 to 20. I think these verses are key to understanding our passage because they show us the eternal perspective that shapes Paul's pastoral heart. The eternal perspective that shapes Paul's pastoral heart. Verse 19, for what is our hope or joy or crown of boasting before our Lord Jesus at his coming? Is it not you? For you are our glory and joy. This is why Paul is so concerned about the Thessalonians standing firm in the Lord. Paul is living in light of eternity. He's, he's looking forward to the coming of Jesus. And Paul asks, what is our hope or joy or glory or crown of boasting? Now, we might expect him to say, Jesus, right? You might expect him to say, the Lord Jesus, he is our hope, our joy, our glory, our crown of boasting. But he doesn't say that. He says, is it not you? Now, this is fascinating. Did Paul... Did Paul mean that? Did he really just call this church his hope, his joy, his crown of boasting, his glory? It, it sounds borderline heretical. And this isn't a typo either. It's not like one of those embarrassing autocorrect situations. He, he, says, he says something similar to other churches. I'll just, there's more examples. I'll just give you two. 2 Corinthians 1.14. Paul says, on the day of our Lord Jesus Christ, sorry, on the day of our Lord Jesus, you will boast of us as we will boast of you. Philippians chapter four, verse one. Therefore, my brothers, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. The word crown that Paul uses there, it's not the word for a royal crown. It's the kind of crown for victorious athletes, a laurel wreath that would symbolize honor and triumph. Today's equivalent would be like a, an Olympic gold medal or a Vince Lombardi trophy or, well, a kind of better, a FIFA World Cup, you know? That's, that's kind of like today's equivalent. Paul says when Jesus comes, the Thessalonians will be his Olympic gold medal. They'll be like a trophy that he boasts in. And again, this language can make us uncomfortable. After all, isn't God supposed to get all the glory? Aren't we only supposed to boast in the Lord? Isn't God our hope and our joy? Well, the answer is yes. But Paul doesn't seem to see a contradiction here. And I don't think we should either. You see, the Thessalonians were trophies of God's grace. That's why Paul keeps thanking God for the work he sees in the Thessalonians. Therefore, Paul's boasting in them was ultimately a boasting in Jesus Christ, wasn't it? Or think about the joy that Paul experiences when he sees the Thessalonians in heaven. 
That's going to be a rejoicing in God's work of salvation. The hope that Paul has for the Thessalonians, it's not a hope in them. Ultimately, it's a hope in God. Think of it this way. On the day Jesus returns, the beauty and worth and glory of God will be magnified when Paul looks at the Thessalonians. I think this is something we don't often think about. Maybe this is actually a a very new concept for you. Paul will have a greater experience of joy in the Lord if the Thessalonians make it to heaven. His experience of eternal joy and glory is bound up with this church. They will be an everlasting reminder to Paul of God's grace through his life and ministry. That's why Paul is so concerned that they make it to heaven. That's why he's so anxious that they stand firm in the Lord. He wants to maximize his experience of God's glory. He's not concerned with the fleeting pleasures of the world. That's why he's content to suffer now for Jesus. Paul wants solid joys and lasting treasures. I think this is what the Bible, part of what the Bible means when it speaks about rewards in heaven. So let me be clear about something. We are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. There's nothing we can do to earn our salvation. There's nothing we contribute. His death on the cross for our sins, his glorious resurrection is wholly sufficient to save us. We simply have to trust in Christ. However, once God saves us, we don't become passive because there's kingdom work to be done and God promises us rewards for our faithfulness. And the Bible doesn't go into much detail about these rewards. However, I think we get a clue in these verses. There's no greater reward than helping people get to heaven. There's nothing better we can devote our lives to. Now look, maybe this sounds a bit abstract. So let's just do a thought experiment, okay? I want you to all use your imagination for a second. Imagine the day when Jesus returns, okay? And you enter the new heavens and new earth. There's no more sin, no more suffering, no more death. God has made all things new. The former things have passed away and you are surrounded by countless people from every tribe, tongue, and nation. Now imagine Jesus coming alongside you. Okay, this is sanctified speculation, but just stick with me. And he puts his arm around you and he says, I'd like you to meet some folks. And he takes you to a crowd of people and at first you don't recognize their faces and so Jesus explains, these are Zulu people from South Africa. They're here because you prayed for and supported the Mafusis. And these, these are Albanians from Gostovar. They're here because you prayed for and supported the Schraders and the Snyders. And see these people over here, these are people that you prayed for during the evening service. You never knew at the time, but I was using your prayers to bring these people to faith. See this person over here, this is the barista who overheard your weekly Bible study. You had no idea she was paying attention. And this here, this is, this is the kid on your old sports team. You, you don't recognize them, but th- they always remember how seriously you took your faith. And that impacted them many years later. Oh, and these, these, all these people, 
These are your great-great-grandchildren. They're here because of the legacy of faith that you left behind. You know, the joy you feel in that moment is inexpressible. You can't believe God used you in these people's lives, strangers that you didn't even know. They're enjoying eternal glory and you got to be part of their story. What an honor. And just when you think things couldn't get any better, Jesus walks you through the crowd and all of a sudden you recognize some faces in the multitude. You see that person that you invited to Christianity Explored. You see the children you served in the gospel project. You see the youth that you met with on Sunday evenings. You see families who came to I-55. You see those neighbors, you know, the ones that you shared Christ with and they didn't seem interested. And then they moved away and you just thought they were the last people to ever believe in Jesus. But look, here they are. You see the guy on the plane you shared the gospel with. You see the girl that you met with every week to study the Bible. You see your coworker, the one that mocked you for being a Christian, but you were, you were just so gracious and you kept pointing them, to, pointing them to Jesus and you didn't even know that had an impact. But look, here he is. You see your church family, the people that you worshiped with and prayed for and counseled and wept alongside and rejoiced with. You see your mum. She spent most of her life not knowing the Lord, but you visited her in hospital. You read the Bible to her. You prayed for her. You sang hymns to her. And you thought that she died apart from Christ. But here she is. What a surprise. You see your spouse. And as you make eye contact, you just shake your heads in disbelief because you've been through so much together. And you wondered, you sometimes wondered if either of you would make it. There have been times when you've had to literally carry one another in the Christian life. But here you both are. And you see your kids. All those prayers, all those conversations, all those sleepless nights, all those sacrifices, it was all worth it. Can you imagine that? I mean, doesn't that eternal perspective make you want to invest your life in gospel ministry? That you don't have to be the Apostle Paul to do this either. You don't have to be a pastor or in vocational Christian ministry. Anyone can invest their time and energy and resources in the eternal well-being of others. Anyone can pray. Anyone can serve. Anyone can tell someone about Jesus. An eternal perspective will give us the same pastoral heart we see in the Apostle Paul. We'll be anxious for people to make it to heaven. We'll be overjoyed when they stand firm in the Lord. An eternal perspective will motivate us to invest our lives in solid joys and lasting treasures. It'll change the way we pray. It'll change the way we serve, the way we suffer, the way we speak, the way we spend our time and resources. There's another angle to all this. So we've been, we've been thinking about this passage from the Apostle Paul's perspective. So we've been putting ourselves in his shoes, seeing what we can learn. But as we finish, let's put ourselves in the shoes of the Thessalonians. How are they meant to respond to this passage? What did Paul want them to do in response? Well, I think they were meant to continue standing firm in the Lord, right? 
Why? Because Paul's joy was wrapped up in their perseverance. Look again at verse 8. For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. They were meant to read that and go, okay, we need to keep standing fast in the Lord. Paul's present and future joy is inextricably tied to this church, keeping the faith. Again, this is something that we might not think about. Maybe you've never thought about this before. So if somebody asks you, why should you keep trusting in Jesus? You might say, well, because I don't want to go to hell or because heaven's going to be awesome or because Jesus loved me and he gave himself for my sins and they'd all be great biblical answers. But Paul gives us another motivation here, one we might not think about. We need to stand firm in the Lord because it will bring joy to other people. Have you ever thought about that before? When we all get to heaven, so like when you all get to heaven, don't you want to see me there? Some of you aren't so sure, but most of you are, right? <laughs> Wouldn't it bring you joy to see my face when Jesus returns? Like when Jesus comes, I want to see you all there in heaven, standing firm in the Lord. The, the church family that I've worshipped with each Sunday, the people I've prayed for and preached to and served alongside and suffered with and rejoiced with, I want you alongside me when Jesus comes. I'm going to boast in you and you're going to boast in me. We're going to boast in the Lord together. We're going to increase each other's joy. There's mutual joy to be had if we all get to heaven. The Bible doesn't give us just one motivation for standing firm in the Lord. It gives us lots of motivations and this is one of them. I don't know about you, but I sometimes think of the people who've invested in my spiritual life. My wife, my pastors, my friends, my seminary professors, my church family. I don't want to let them down. How could I not stand firm in the Lord? I want to maximize their joy when Jesus returns. Think of the people who've invested in your spiritual well-being. Your parents, your youth leaders, your small group the guys in your men's group, the women in your Bible study, your pastors, your friends, your family, don't you want to stand firm in the Lord for them? Yes, you want to stand firm for Jesus. Yes, you want to stand firm for yourself, but we need all the motivation we can get. Here's another reason to stand firm. Let's do it for one another. Now look, this is different than people pleasing. By the way, this isn't follow Jesus because it will make your parents happy. Okay, this isn't fake it so that you, your kind of pastors will be happy with you. That's not what this is. It's follow Jesus because there's mutual, eternal joy on offer. Joy for you, joy for me. Jesus is coming, so let's stand firm in the Lord and let's help one another stand firm in the Lord. Let's keep gathering together to spare one another on. Let's keep making church a priority. Let's keep reading the, the Bible together and praying for one another. Let's keep fighting sin together and pointing each other to the Lord Jesus. You know, I can think of no better application of this passage than to take the Lord's Supper together. Because at the table, we get a picture of that day when Jesus returns. On that day, we will feast with Christ at his table. And we'll do that together. And so as you come to the table, here's what I want you to do today. I want you to look at your brothers and sisters. And I want you to imagine them with you at the heavenly banquet. Imagine the mutual joy you'll have when you see each other there. There'll be no more sin. 
no more pain, no more suffering, no more death. We'll be in the glorious presence of God where there's fullness of joy and pleasures forevermore. And that joy will just be magnified more and more because of seeing who is there with us. And we'll say to one another, thanks for helping me get here. Thanks for praying. Thanks for serving. Thanks for suffering. Thanks for speaking the gospel to me. Thanks for standing firm in the Lord. When we all get to heaven, what a day of rejoicing that will be. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for the joy, the eternal joy that awaits us at the coming of the Lord Jesus. Lord, we do thank you that investing in the eternal good of others is a life worth living for. We thank you for those who have poured into our lives for the sake of Christ. And we thank you for the opportunity we have to pour into the lives of others. And so, Lord, we pray that you would give us an eternal perspective, one that wants solid joys and lasting treasures. And we pray that you would help us to maximize our joy in the Lord on that day by helping as many people as possible to get to heaven. We know, Lord, that that's ultimately not down to us. We have no power over the hearts of others. We know that it's all by your grace and your power, but we thank you that we get to be involved in your work. And so we pray that you take your word today and you'd implant it deep in our hearts for your glory and our joy and the joy of one another. And we pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen.